This Philly Press Box Radio episode is a rebroadcast of a highlights show that we aired September 4th, 2016. Hope you enjoy it. If you're a regular listener, you know those classic sound bites are what we've used to open just about all of the first 98 episodes of the Philly Press Box Radio Roundtable. I'm Jim Chesko, Chet to most, and my radio partner Bill Furman and I have somehow made it to show number 99. So, before our special 100th episode on September 7th, we thought this would be a great time to look back at how we got here. Both longtime Philadelphia sports fans, Bill and I met in 2013 when we were each writing occasional articles and doing some sports talk radio for TalkSportsPhilly.com before deciding the following spring to launch our own show. We did our inaugural show on April 30th, 2014, taking some time at the top of the program to tell folks a little about ourselves in relation to the Philly sports scene. Please allow me to introduce myself. I went first. I'm old enough to have seen Wilt play as a 76er, Dick Allen as a Philly, Timmy Brown as an Eagle, but still young enough, I hope, to realistically believe that maybe, just maybe, I'll witness an Eagles Super Bowl victory. So, yeah, despite having been alive for more than 4,000 of the Phillies' 10,000-plus losses, the Eagles' ongoing quest for that first-ever Super Bowl win, a lot of futility for the 76ers and the Flyers' inability to get that third Stanley Cup. I remain a diehard fan who still loves to watch all of those teams and talk about them with other frustrated fans like you. So let's do it and let's have some fun with it. I've seen a lot. I used to go to Franklin Field. Back in the early days, I was actually there when they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. was there when they flew the helicopter over Franklin Field with the Joe Must Go banner with Joe Kuharik back in the day. So, seeing a whole lot of it, and of course, with the Flyers from day one, been a fan all along and have enjoyed that, and also got to see Wilt play myself. My first job ever was as an usher at the fabulous Palestra. Our very first guest was sports junkie Kevin McClure. Other interesting early guests included author and humorist Matt Goldberg and a guy named Joe Ferry from the Dick Allen Belongs in the Hall of Fame campaign, something that Bill and I agree should happen, by the way. Before long, we snagged lots of other terrific guests, including several members of the Philadelphia area media, like Calkins Media's Tom Moore and Kevin Cooney, the Daily News' Mike Kern, the Inquirer's Frank Fitzpatrick and Mike Sealski, and NJ.com's Elliot Shore Parks and Mark Eckel. Although it would sometimes take a little arm twisting. I'm only here because you promised me beer. Yeah, sometimes deals need to be struck. But Mark Eckel has actually been our most frequent guest, joining us six or seven times since we started doing Philly Press Box Radio. And he's always a lot of fun and gives good insight. Mark's been covering the Eagles since the mid-80s, so last year we asked him to recall some of the most memorable plays he's witnessed in that time. Number one, the Randall Cunningham versus the Giants on Monday Night Football when Carl Banks would have put any other quarterback maybe out with the hit he put on him. Instead, Randall just kind of like rebounds, bounced back up and threw a touchdown pass to Jimmy Giles. That's number one. Number two, again, is Randall Cunningham, but it's, it's not even the play. It's just the whole essence of the play was the, the fake kneel down against the Cowboys <laughs> yep. in the game after the strike because 
that's a play you'll, you've never seen before, and unless another Buddy Ryan comes around, you'll never see it again, where the, the game's over, Eagles are in victory formations, first down, Randall takes a snap, takes a knee. Second down, Randall takes a snap, takes a knee. Third down, Randall takes a snap, fakes like he's going to take the knee, stands up and throws a bomb to Mike Quick, just because of the, <laughs> the whole thing about it. That's number two. Number three is going to be tough. Let me put a defensive play in there for you. Oh, Eric Allen's interception return against the Jets at the Meadowlands, the day that Randall Cunningham broke his leg. Boomer Esiason was the quarterback. Eric Allen picks him off and brings it back. I think it was 90 yards, but he ran about 180 yards, just zigzagging hmm. all across yeah. the field. And then after he scored, Randall had just come out of the tunnel on crutches, and Eric Allen sees him and runs over and gives Randall the ball. Another guy who's witnessed plenty of memorable plays is the radio voice of the Eagles, now entering his 40th year in that role. We asked Merrill Reese to give us a couple of his favorites. I'm going to give you a number one, and this may surprise people, because in my first year I had the original miracle of the Meadowlands with Herman Edwards scooping up the Joe Pazarczyk fumble, so that's really right up there. But my very favorite, my very favorite was December 19th, 2010, and that was the game at the Meadowlands against the Giants, which the Eagles, I, I remember saying at halftime, the score is something like the Giants 21, the Eagles are still back at the hotel. And lo and behold, Michael Vick rallied them through a long touchdown pass to Brent Selleck. They recovered an onside kick. Vick marched them running, passing, did everything. Got the final touchdown when he hit Jeremy Macklin inside the left pylon. They held the Giants in defense. They forced Max Dodge to punt. And then that great walk-off equivalent of a grand slam by Deshaun Jackson, who muffed the punt, picked it up, got a hellacious block from Jason Avant took it up the middle and danced into the end zone. That would be number one. But there were so many other great ones, like that snowy day when the Eagles beat Atlanta in that NFC Championship game. And, of course, the one with Wilbur Montgomery off the right side against the Dallas Cowboys back in January, I think it was January 10th, 1981, the one that put the Eagles in their first Super Bowl, Super Bowl 15. Can't wait to talk to Merrill again when he joins us for show number 100. not the only great play-by-play guy we've talked to on Philly Press Box Radio. We got a Phillies season preview in both the spring of 2015 and 2016 from none other than Tom McCarthy. T-Mac is a real pleasure to talk to, and during his first visit, we reflected on his June 2014 catch when he and his broadcast partners called the game from the center field stands at Citizens Bank Park. Look at me. Deep to center field, out toward our vantage point. Come get it, Thomas! Not good that he hit a home run, but I was able to catch it. (laughs) That was quite a moment, Tom. It was an unbelievable moment. I mean, you know, you never try to make anything about you as a broadcaster. It's always about the game and what's happening on the field. But that was, I've had several moments that I will never, ever forget, whether it be Princeton beating UCLA, the Carrills last year, being the coach at Princeton University, uh, or Roy Halladay's perfect game. I mean, that, that was unbelievable. And when Freddie Freeman hit that ball, it just sounded like he hit it really well. And if I would have dropped it, I would have never heard the end of it from my kids. Uh, they would have uh, they would have exploited it over and over and over again if I had dropped that ball. That's for sure. <laughs> Who were your sports broadcasting heroes growing up in the 70s and early 80s? Well, the biggest hero that I had, just because I listened to him all the time, was Bob Murphy. I thought he was as 
good a radio announcer as you will find because he was able to sort of relate to the fan and sort of tell the story. Obviously, Vin Scully was huge. Ernie Harwell was huge. I've gotten a chance to meet all three of them, and they were unbelievable resources to talk to. And then, of course, HK. I mean, growing up in New Jersey, there was sort of a triangle of Yankees, Mets, and Phillies games that were always on in my house. And just the way Harry called the big moment, there's nobody that can call the big moment the way that he did. When it comes to great journalists and expert analysts, there's none better than Hall of Fame sports writer Ray Dinger. Despite the fact that he's still busy as heck with his work on Comcast Sportsnet and WIP, not to mention writing the wonderfully received play Tommy and Me, Ray has managed to find time to grace us with his insight five times over the past two years. In one of those visits, we asked what we thought might be a tough question to name in order the three greatest eagles of all time. Not tough at all, apparently. Easy. Bednarik, Van Buren, Reggie White. Wow. How would Chuck Bednarik do in today's NFL? He'd be a star. He'd be a great player. He'd be, he'd be a great player in any era because he, he's one of the rare players of his era that actually had the size to play in this era. I mean, Chuck was 6'3 and 235 pounds, which would be fine size for a linebacker in today's NFL. A little bit small, I guess, for a center, but he could play linebacker at that size. And probably today, he'd probably, he'd probably be more like 250, but he could absolutely play with his instincts and his strength and his want to. Yeah, he's. I think if I had to rate all the players, he would be the number one because he was the best player at two different positions for a decade. There aren't many players in the history of the game you can say that about. Ray Dinger and his radio partner, Glenn Mack, now a few years back, wrote an awesome book called The Ultimate Book of Sports Movies. And we asked Ray how their top two ended up being Rocky and Hoosiers. When it came right down to it, we decided to go Rocky number one. Just such a wonderful story and so beautifully tells the story of the underdog, which is really the template for most sports movies. And we both loved Hoosiers, and plus Gene Hackman wrote the foreword for the book, so we couldn't put him down. We couldn't put him too far down the list, so we made Hoosiers really? number two. Raging Bull coming in third on that list, by the way. Phil's reporter Leslie Goodell of Comcast Sportsnet is another one of our favorite guests. In the summer of 2015, just before the team parted ways with shortstop Jimmy Rollins, Leslie told us she agreed with Hall of Fame shortstop Barry Larkin that Rollins should join the former Reds great in Cooperstown when he's eligible. I think that Jimmy Rollins' numbers over time and the longevity in the game certainly helped. But I think Jimmy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame when you compare him. And like Barry pointed out, he said, hey, you know, his numbers are better than mine and I'm in the Hall of Fame said something and he did that with one team and he was there to help bring the team over the hump. You know, obviously the overall numbers make a difference, but I think the whole package of what Jimmy's done in his career in Philadelphia does make him Hall of Fame worthy, absolutely. We had also raised the question a few times on our program about whether former Sixer Allen Iverson would be a first ballot basketball Hall of Famer. But one of Leslie's co-workers at Comcast Sportsnet is longtime 76ers reporter Dee Lynham, who had told us that Iverson was absolutely deserving. And she was right. AI was voted into the hall earlier this year and will be inducted September 9th. Speaking of Dee Lynham, she was on with us last February and lamented the fact that the 76ers family had lost a couple of legends in the previous few months, Daryl Dawkins and Moses Malone. I didn't really know Daryl as a player. I only got to know him when he was in, you know, a role after his playing career. But yes, just an infectious personality. And the other thing, I think, you know, we talk about it after the fact, but he was ahead of his time in terms of marketing himself, coming up with names for his dunks. 
having such a flair, I'd love to have known what he would have made his Twitter handle if he had had Twitter back then or what yeah. he would have tweeted about on a given day. That seems like it's right up the alley of who he would have thrived and enjoyed being as a player. And I'll say for Moses, too, I actually played in a charity poker tournament and sat next to Moses, which was like a couple of hours. That was a couple of years back. And that was probably the first time that I was with him in that kind of setting as opposed to, you know, interviewing him or, you know, talking basketball. And a real gentle spirit as well. So I think that was a big hit for that organization. And just to to lose him at such young ages. A must-read in the Sunday Inquirer is the Frank's Place column in the sports section. We had Frank Fitzpatrick on with us a couple of times, helping us to recap the years 2014 and 15 on the Philly sports scene. Not exactly the best of times for fans around here. I guess I've been around Philadelphia sports so long that it's difficult <laughs> for me to work up a healthy optimism. Philadelphia is, we're more in our comfort zone right now. You know, when we're whining and complaining and pleading and wondering what's going to get better. When the Phillies were, were having that run in the, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, it was unnatural for me. I was looking at the, the city and the fans, and it just didn't feel real to me, you know. Now we're back at a point where it kind of feels real. Where we're all wondering what the heck's going on here. There's sort of a delicious self-pity about it all. Lo and behold, a few months later, Jay Wright's Villanova Wildcats brought some much-needed joy to Philly sports fans, winning the Men's NCAA Basketball Championship on a buzzer-beating three-pointer by Chris Jenkins. We brought Frank back on the show two nights later to talk about that dramatic Nova victory over North Carolina and how it compared to Raleigh Massimino's upset win back in 1985. It was just a great game. It was one of the best college games of any kind. Forget about playoffs. It's one of the best college games of any kind I've seen. Well, Frank, I have to ask you, since you wrote the book, literally, the perfect game about the 1985 team upset in Georgetown and you know, that was a David and Goliath type thing, and I don't think you're writing a book about this one, but maybe you are. But how do you compare that game to this game? Well, you know, Nova being a two-seed, you know, and being ranked number one during the course of the season, it sort of takes away from that David and Goliath aspect a little. I don't think the disparity between the two teams was nearly as marked as it was in that Georgetown-Villanova game from 85. Both games, I think, were highlighted by the opening tap to final whistle intensity. I mean, I, I just found it astounding how Villanova could maintain that level of defense for the whole tournament, really, but for 40 minutes of that game, they, they just were relentless. In terms of being an entertaining game, I would take this game, only because of the way it ended. The 85 game, you know, there wasn't a shot clock, there wasn't a three-point shot, so Villanova took a little more time on its possessions. So that was a little less entertaining than the pace of this game, but, you know, they were two great, two classic games. I don't think this game ranks in terms of its historical significance, that Georgetown-Villanova game is still probably the greatest upset in the history of the NCAA championship game, whereas this game might be the most entertaining game in championship history, but it, it wasn't the greatest upset. Speaking of classic college basketball, who could forget John Wooden's UCLA Bruins dynasty in the late 1960s and early 70s? Well, our most listened to program to date was last March when we were joined by one of Coach Wooden's star players from back in the day, Andre McCarter. The former Overbrook High star, a great point guard, told Bill about the need to tone down his Philly swagger in playing for that legendary coach. I had to adjust to the way he liked the game more basically played. I already had a high level, in my opinion, of not turning the ball over, playing team ball. So it wasn't any kind of disciplinary problems that we had. It was just a matter of flair. 
in the way I, you know, in Philadelphia, we like to entertain the crowd while still being able to get the job done. <laughs> but Coach wouldn't want to just get the job done. Instead of going behind the back and do all these other things. And so what he did in a way is raise my proficient level even up higher to see the game on another plateau that allowed me to go literally without turnovers and mistakes. I read a story where you were in practice and you came down and you did a little fake behind the back pass one way and faked him. I believe it was Bill Walton actually. You faked him out and you shoveled it the other way mm-hmm. and it was a it was a very pretty play, and everybody thought so except for Coach. And uh, he took you into the office, and he gave you an analytical breakdown of why that was not a good play. Is that is that a true story? In essence, yeah, it was like that. Basically, Bill was one of the greatest players as far as the ability to block shots and things of that nature. So it was fun, you know, for me with all the stuff that used to play in the playgrounds in Philly, you know, trick basketball. We seen Earl Monroe, Guy Rogers, you know. We got so many examples of guys that knew how to do stuff with the ball. So I did one of those on him, and, you know, all the players just fell out laughing. I mean, he went one way thinking the ball went that way and went the other way. In the meantime, here comes Coach Wooden, and he, you can kind of hear him when he's fast walking down the court. Andre, grace and sakes alive, you know, and he's going off and all this stuff. You know, you do that kind of play and walk here and this and that and the other. And so – the next day, I go in the office because I want to know the play was successful. I want to know what's going on. So when I get in, he, you know, he finally calms me down. We get to talking. He says, well, let me show you some statistics. So he goes in his drawer. I knew I was in trouble when it happened. And he starts pulling out these cards where he has kept track of statistical information on whether you throw in this particular situation this kind of pass or if you throw the basic two-hand pass on this situation, what the percentage was. Make a long story short. By the time he finished with the information, the pass I made was successful about 78% of the time. The pass he was talking about I could have made in that situation and still made the play was like 98%. So you're sitting there and you're like, well, which one are you going to choose? I couldn't go for the 78 even though I loved the play. I had to go with the 98, and that kind of soothed, you know, all the steam kind of just aside. And I said, okay, coach. I see what you're talking about. With Villanova winning the second national title, the 76ers poised to put Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Dario Saric on the court together this fall. The Flyers returning to the playoffs last spring, and the Philadelphia Soul winning Arena Bowl 29. Maybe, just maybe, the Philly sports scene is about to get a whole lot better. Now, the Phillies aren't going to the postseason this year, but with top prospects like Nick Williams, J.P. Crawford, and Jorge Alfaro just about ready for the majors, it might not be a long wait, as Bucks County Courier-Times reporter Kevin Cooney told us last spring. If they all pan out, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a wildcard push in 17. They really value these minor leaguers coming up, and they think that those minor leaguers are ahead of the game here. And if that's the case, then 2017 is a year I think you can start to see Significant progress, though. I think they'll get to the finish line? Probably not. But 17 is probably when you'll see the first little glimpse of contention. 18 is probably when you can expect them to make a full leap forward. We shall see. You never know how a young player might respond to the pressure of playing in the brightest of lights. Phil's pitcher Vince Velasquez looked like an all-star in April and May, but has now gone eight starts without earning a W. Jake Thompson looked like a can't-miss right-hander at AAA, but he's struggled mightily with his control since being called up to the Phils in early August. Could it be nerves? A Philly Press Box radio guest last spring, sports psychologist Joel Fish, had lots to say about athletes dealing with nerves. People will come to me and say, for example, I choke or I can't handle pressure. And when you boil it down, 
most of us can handle pressure, but there are certain specific situations that we are still learning. I take a learning approach, how to handle better. So maybe it was learning to let go of that first mistake, let it go, focus on the moment, next play. Because a lot of times, if you look at baseball, you know, it's for almost any sport, it's the frustration that comes along with making a mistake or not having the ability to let go of a mistake that we take to the next play, and it just compounds itself. So for a baseball player, it might be, okay, what are you going to say? What are you going to do after that first error? For a pitcher, how do you relax yourself when you walk somebody? For the tennis player, okay, we know match point creates a lot of tension. Let's come up with a game plan, things you can say or do in match point situations. So when you're in that situation, you can say, I know I'm feeling a little anxious, but I know what to do. And whenever you have a plan, I think you're going to be more in control. Whenever you're more in control, you're going to feel more relaxed and more confident. If you're more confident, your natural talent is going to flow. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I think you can break down choking, pressure performance to specific game situations. And I find when you do that, it's much more manageable for athletes. It makes it just much more of a manageable part of the learning curve. One guy whom all Eagles fans will be watching closely over the next several years is Carson Wentz. A week before the North Dakota State signal caller was even taken by the Birds with the second overall pick in the 2016 draft, draft guru Fran Duffy made his annual pre-draft visit to Philly Press Box Radio and said the likely Eagles quarterback of the future looks to have a pretty big upside. You see the physical tools, and they're certainly there. He's almost 240 pounds. He's a big kid. He's a good athlete. He's got a good arm. He's accurate, good decision maker. And really, honestly, the big thing that's always stood out to me with Carson Wentz are the mental traits. You know, and he had full autonomy at the line of scrimmage. He, he was given everything pre-snap in terms of what the play call was going to be. He set all the protections all year long for North Dakota State when he was in the game. There was a play, guys, against Weber State. It was in September. They were on the 25-yard line. Weber State comes out. They show a blitz from the right side. He goes to the line of scrimmage. Wentz does, changes the play up, calls a quarterback run to the left. He runs 26 yards for a touchdown. And that's the kind of thing, the pre-snap ability to be able to see, okay, this is what the defense is doing. How can I best put my offense in position to move the football down the field? He did that repeatedly. That was just one instance, but did that a number of different times. For North Dakota State, my, you know, my good friend Greg Cosell from NFL Films obviously has been doing this for a long, long time. And Greg will tell me, look, it, it doesn't matter where you do it. It doesn't matter who you do it against. It's how you do it. What exactly, you know, and, that, and by that, I mean, he played at North Dakota State, sure. But we see players come from small schools every single year in the draft and thrive in the NFL, even early as rookies. If you have talent, the NFL is going to find you and they're going to leverage you to the best of your ability. There are still some doubters out there, and Bleeding Green Nation's Brandon Lee Gowton told us just how important it is for Howie Roseman to have been right about the decision to trade up via two separate deals to get to number two overall to take Wentz. This is the move that really either makes or breaks the franchise. It really makes or breaks his tenure here. You know, If the quarterback risk pays off, you have a franchise quarterback. The Eagles haven't had one of those since Donovan McNabb. If it does, you got it. I think it's a position where they know they need to move on from Howie Roseman and Doug Peterson and everyone else involved. Fans in and around Philadelphia are blessed to have so many great journalists writing about their favorite teams. One of those is Inquirer columnist Mike Sealski, who visited us three times over the past year alone. We asked Mike if there were any Philadelphia sports writers he looked up to in getting started in the business in the mid-90s, and he didn't hesitate with his answer. Bill Lyons, the yeah. longtime sports columnist the Inquirer, 
as a kid, I loved his writing. He actually became my mentor. I contacted him when I was in college, and uh, he took me under his wing, and we've known each other 20 years, and he's a great, great man. How great was his mm-hmm. five-part series about his Alzheimer's, and how cool was it to be there with him when he threw out the first pitch at a Phillies game? Just incredible. The series, I would think the Inquirer is going to nominate it for the Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, I'm biased completely, but if the judges have any good sense, they'll judge it accordingly. And to be there, to see him throughout that first pitch, and he's such a good man. It was funny. I'd gone down and seen him with a couple other writers beforehand, and I went back up to the press box to watch it. And I was standing next to a couple guys, Jason Stark, who worked with Bill for a long time at the Inquirer, and Jerry Krasnick, both of whom are baseball writers at ESPN now. And Jerry didn't know Bill all that well. And I could overhear Jason talking to Jerry about him. And the one thing that stands out, which was 100% true, is that Jason said to Jerry, you know, you hear all these all the time, oh, this guy's a good guy, he's a better person than he is a writer. And Jason said, with Bill, all of that is absolutely true. He was the genuine article. It's been great for me as somebody who has known him 20 years and who grew up admiring him and has gotten close to him to see the outpouring from the Delaware Valley and the readers of the Inquirer and Philly.com to that series and to him because it just reaffirms the power that the written word can have, the power a person of grace and dignity can have. It's been a wonderful coda to his life. We could have a whole discussion about Twitter, but you are a frequent tweeter, and I like the fact that you seem to use quite a bit of humor and sarcasm on Twitter. And let me give you three recent examples, things that you put out there. So I wrote a column about football being dangerous, and Miles Austin said some stuff in it. Another one. (laughs) uh, Hashtag flyers have players with jersey numbers 82, 89, and 93. They're all reporting as eligible. And my personal favorite, little known fact, Chase Utley shot the sheriff and the deputy, then slid hard into their corpses. (laughs) I I just think, to be quite honest, guys, it's called Twitter. And if you're going to call something Twitter, you better darn well be silly on it. (laughs) You know, that's kind of how I look at it. You know, in my Twitter bio, I've had this for a while, that I provide links and bad jokes. I don't think it needs to be taken that seriously because in reality, how serious can you be over 140 characters? Bill and I have enjoyed every single one of our guests, honestly, but I think we get extra excited on those occasions that we have former pro athletes on with us. We know we'll always get some great stories and some great insight from those guys who play the game. Remember how so many of us, as fans, questioned the coaching ability of Eagles headman Rich Kotite back in the early 90s? Well, his former wide receiver, Fred Barnett, isn't going to try to change our minds. Check this out. Rich was not a head coach. He was a position coach, and he knows it. And he shouldn't have been a head coach. (laughs) Here's another question I had for Arkansas Fred during his August 2014 visit. How would Fred Barnett do in a Chip Kelly-type offense? I would be probably the highest paid player in in the world. (laughs) I I would be bragging every week. We've got to get Fred Barnett back on the show. Former Phillies pitcher Larry Christensen, a member of the 1980 World Championship team, told us last winter about playing with Pete Rose, as well as playing for oft criticized manager Danny Ozark. LC and Ozark both arrived in Philly in 1973. You know, it was very similar to the way people felt about Charlie Manuel starting out with the Phillies, you know, and they didn't accept him. Danny was a, was a player's manager. He was a, he was a great guy. He came out of the Dodger organization, and I think, uh, you know, there's proof in the pudding right there. But Danny was a really nice man. Danny let us play. 
And it was too bad that Danny ended up getting moved out, you know, when it started to really gel, and then we ended up winning a World Series in 1980. Larry, I wanted to ask you about those teams. You know, you, you played on some really, really good teams. And as we said, you guys all grew up together with Boa and Schmidt and Lazinski and, and Maddox and Boone and all that. But then came along Pete Rose. And I wanted to ask you, as a player on that team and coming up through the great teams that couldn't get over the hump, does Pete Rose deserve as much credit from the player standpoint as he's given from the fan standpoint? Pete Rose was definitely the guy that was the spark plug for the 1980 team. And if he was not on that team, I'm very doubtful that we may have gone as far as we did because I don't think our team was as good in 80 as it was in 76, 7, and 8, those teams there. But my gosh, when we got him in the winter of free agency in 78 it was because he was with us in 79 but Pete was was a guy that he helped Mike Schmidt become a better player I think everybody played a lot harder because Pete always was in the cage taking batting practice all you know came from the big red machine getting him in the first place was a was a real gift but I love I'm still great friends with Pete very supportive of Pete he did make a mistake he should be in the Hall of Fame he always said I'm going to be a unanimous Hall of Famer and Obviously, that did not happen and may not happen. More recently, we had a terrific time talking with former Eagle Bill Bradley. The Palestine, Texas native still today holds, with Brian Dawkins and Eric Allen, a share of the Eagles' all-time interceptions record, 34. But you know, you never forget your first one. For Bill Bradley, it came late in his 1969 rookie season. The first interception was we were playing the Cowboys, and Gummy Carr was our DV coach, so they were giving us the business. And so about the middle to the end of the third quarter, I asked Coach Carr if I could go in. I said, won't you let some of us young guys play? And this game's out of hand, and then that way you won't get your veterans hurt, and you can see what we can do. Well, he just said, I'm, get away, get away, get away. I'm coaching right now. We're, you know, it was 40-something to 17 or something like that. And about the middle of the fourth, I went up to him and he had had enough. He said, well, just get in there then. Well, the first play, we were blitzing the Cowboys back then and the adjustments were to hit quick look-ins or slants or just quick passes when we're bringing everybody. So my job was to come over from the free safety and cover the tight end because the strong safety was blitzing off the edge. So Staubach had just come back from the Navy and they put him in and they had just gotten a new tight end from Chicago, which was Ditka. And so they missed the check. Ditka saw me coming over to get him and he straightened up his route while Roger threw to the quick look in and hit me right in the hands. I took it, went down the near sideline and got a good block or two and took it into the end zone. And that was my first play from the line of scrimmage in the National Football League was an interception with a 54-yard touchdown. Don't cheat yourself, Super Bill. It was actually a 56-yard touchdown return. Talk about fun, the show last January when we had former Eagle Dennis Franks on the program. And then we got a call from Denny's old special teams buddy from the 1976 through 78 Eagles, Vince Papali. They told us just how much fun they had playing special teams for Dick Vermeil. We knew what our role was. We were bomb spotters. You know, Dennis, I mean, one of the most important positions as a long snapper. I mean, you sort of take that snap for granted, but you don't want to be the guy that's making the snap. And, you know, and then coming down in coverage and, we used to compete against each other by trying to get down there first to make the hit. And the night before, <laughs> then remember the night before, we'd be watching on, on the games. We, we'd be sitting there just sort of, okay, what are you going to do on the first play? We are trying to figure out what would be the craziest thing we could possibly do on the opening kickoff for the, or the kickoff return. And we wound up doing it, you know. <laughs> yeah. We used to go down Word. screaming loud and crazy, you know, and it was like 
amazing. We'd make contacts. You know, Vince was a little bit more fleeted, and he was always a step and a half or two ahead of me. But it's sort of, sort of a like step and a half okay. or two. Man, yeah, well, uh, hey, wait a minute. Don't be coming Ooh. down on an old lineman now. Give him credit for running. <laughs> oh, so we, we'd have some great competitions and big hits, big hits. You know Barrett Brooks these days from Breakfast on Broad on TV, but the former Eagle, Lion, and Steeler was a pretty good offensive lineman back in the late 1990s and early 2000s. He caught us by surprise when we asked him who the toughest defensive lineman was to try to block, especially since the legend that he named was very late in his Hall of Fame career when Barrett went up against him. Oh, everybody calls him Reggie or Reggie White. I call him Mr. White. He was by far, God rest his soul, but the hardest guy to block ever. You know, he was the best to ever play the game. In fact, they always say that Rice is the best player to ever play. No, it had to be Mr. White. He is the best player to ever play football. Talk about high praise for the Minister of Defense. Other experts to visit Philly Press Box Radio included Mike Reichenbach, Kevin Riley, and Gary Cobb. Yet another memorable guest and all-around fun guy was former Philly Glenn Wilson. Now, Glenn Bell spent only four seasons in Philadelphia, but he told us it was absolutely his favorite place over his 11-year Major League career. To me, Philadelphia is my baseball home. When I go out in public and I still wear baseball caps, I wear a Phillies hat. I wear a Phillies jersey, T-shirts. I still wear Philly stuff. My office is decorated with all my Philly stuff. And I've got a portion of Detroit, Sam Houston, and, and Houston. But, man, Philadelphia is what made Glenn Wilson a better baseball player. Hey, if you're in your 50s or 60s or older, you probably remember how incredibly popular roller derby once was. Seriously, for a lot of folks, including yours truly, watching roller games, the Philadelphia Warriors or Eastern Warriors, was a Sunday night ritual in the late 1960s and early 70s. So it was a real thrill to have the great Judy Arnold visit Philly Press Box Radio in July to reminisce about those days. I can't tell you how many people over the years that I've spoken to said that was a family time for my family. We didn't sit down and do anything together, but we'd sit and watch roller games together. And it brought our family together. And or I came with my grandma and grandma loved you. And, you know, I just hear all that stuff of how families were together watching roller games. So that's really pretty neat for me. Hockey's pretty darn popular in Philadelphia, too, of course, and we had a super time talking with former Flyers great Brian Propp in August of 2015. As we do with many of our guests, we put Brian in the hot seat during his visit, peppering him with a bunch of questions. Here's a bit of that segment with Proper. Who was the best fighter in the league in your era? Ben Wilson by far. Wow, one of your teammates. All right, now put your thinking cap on for this one. You're putting together the Flyers' all-time team. Fred Sherrill's the coach. Bernie's in goal. Clarkie's the center. Who are the two wingers and the two defensemen? Well, can I put Eric Lindros on, on one wing? Sure. And I put Mark Recchi on the, on the left wing, and then I'd use Mark Howe and Eric Desjardins. All right, yeah, a lot of great candidates on uh, the forward line, that's for sure. And finally, hockey players seem to love nicknames, from true nicknames like the Hammer, Moose, the Count, or Bundy, to variations on players' names like Clarky, Hexy, or Proper. What player nicknames stick out in your mind as among the best? 
Well, if you look at the rat, I mean, uh, that was uh, pretty <laughs> yep. pretty close to what what he was like. <laughs> and uh, and uh, actually, my good friend uh, Brad McCrimmon, they called him the Beast, you know. So like, there was uh, a couple things that you could put into that too. And just one quick follow-up: Is it true that teammates called Bill Barber Arnie because he reminded them of Arnold the Pig of Green Acres fame? Yes, but you know, <laughs> Billy's awesome. He's just a fabulous guy. Now, this guy didn't play the game, but he was on the field at Veterans Stadium for 15 or 16 years. His name is David Raymond, the original Philly fanatic. He visited Philly Press Box Radio last year and talked about how much he loved his job and having fun with players, Phillies, and their opponents. The Mets were, were my favorite team to interact with because they were full of a bunch of, you know, cut-ups and Jay Johnstone-type players. They were just coming into their own as they moved into the middle 80s, so they were having some success, and Hubie Brooks loved the fool around the Fanatic, and my fond memory of him was performing at a spring training game down in Clearwater, and he had set up for the whole Mets to come running out of the dugout in mass and tackle me and jump on me, which which they did. And Hubie had always been playing around with the Fanatic prior to that during the season. So they all came to me, but I fell on my back and they were stacked on top of me. And I started to get claustrophobic and nervous that I was going to get hurt. So Hubie was the first one that had jumped on me. So he was laying on top of me and I started screaming at him, Hubie, get off. You guys are hurting me. And then at the same time, I reached down to the inside of his thigh and I started pinching the inside of his thigh as hard as I could and he started screaming get off he's serious get off and they all jumped off and he came in to see me because he heard that the fanatic had broken his nose he thought that I had broken my nose but when they jumped on me it had actually snapped the costume's nose and so I said no you dummy you didn't break my nose you broke the fanatic's nose and then he pulls up his shorts and shows me the giant hickey that I had made on the inside of his eye by squeezing his skin. He goes, yeah, but you injured me. So it was those types of relationships that I just really treasured because it meant that whenever those guys came into town, they knew me as a person, and they really loved the fanatics, so they would get together and t- play all kinds of practical jokes that ended up being wonderful entertainment, you know, that I didn't even, you know, create. It was just the player's love of the fanatic and having fun. It was those types of memories. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them with people like Willie Stargell and Dave Parker, you know, the greats and Hall of Famers that I got to know and got to meet and interact with that really is the real joy of being the fanatic. And the thing that I miss today is is the Philadelphia fans and the players and getting to know the personal side of some of these players. Another one of our guests knows all about the popularity of the Philly Fanatic. He's Philly's Director of Fun and Games, John Brazer. How is it that the Philly Fanatic has remained so beloved by fans for 38 years? Well, he's the best, and especially when you think about it, we unveiled a mascot in 1978 in Philadelphia, of all cities. You know, I know San Diego had the chicken, but that was the radio station chicken. That wasn't the Padres chicken. So I think it's got to be a fun character, a cool character, and it's a character that basically is like a perpetual eight-year-old. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And I'm telling you, I, as a fan, I grew up watching the Fanatic, and for the last 23 years at work, I see the Fanatic all the time. And I'm telling you, it is funny every time. Sometimes when he does a streak, I don't know if you ever see him do the streak, He'll do it once a year where we'll play that song, The Street, by Ray Stevens, and he'll come out of the right field gate uh, tunnel without a jersey on, and he's just all green, and he's running around like he's streaking. Absolutely hysterical. If you're ever watching pregame Dan Baker do the lineups, you'll see the Fanatic basically imitating every one of our players, sometimes the other players as well. So it never gets old, and it's rare in this town that something can last that long and be so beloved. Speaking of the Fanatic, does he still have an odor problem sometime in the summer? 
yes, uh, as I said before, he smells like a petting zoo located on low tide island. I had to drive down to Clearwater with a fanatic, and I tell you what, it was like a it was basically like a damp shag rug driving down to Florida. You know, it took two days to get down there, and man, I, I had a fanatic flu after I got out of that car in Florida. Hey, if our little internet radio show can stick around one quarter as long as the Fanatic has, we'll consider it to be a big success. 99 shows down, number 100 coming up, and many, many more ahead, we hope. Thank you to our dozens of amazing guests, those you heard in this highlights show, and the many others who've also taken their time to visit us over the past two and a quarter years. And special thanks to our core listeners. You know who you are. We do this for you and others like you who love Philly sports. Thanks also to Bob Sullivan at ChopForKisses.org, marketing maven Mary Flanagan, substitute hosts Steve Switkowitz and Fred Hugo, and of course, Carl Henderson at Carl's Cards and Collectibles. We appreciate each and every one of you. For Bill Furman, this is Jim Chesko. Chet, please join Philly Press Box Radio for episode number 100 with former Eagles Pro Bowler Seth Joyner and the voice of the Eagles, Merrill Reese, Wednesday, September 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can listen through our Facebook page or on the internet at blogtalkradio.com slash phillypressboxradio and later on both iTunes and Stitcher. B-A-T-L-E-S, Eagles! Hey everyone, it's Chet. Thanks for listening to this highlights episode of Philly Press Box Radio. On next week's show, Wednesday, March 1st, our guests will include the guy who is known to many as El Wingador, five-time wingball champion Bill Simmons. He'll talk with us about his eating prowess, of course, but also about his new book, Snow on the Barbed Wire, which, among other things, details how he went down a devastating and destructive road. He ended up getting arrested for dealing drugs and spending a couple of years in prison. We'll talk about all of that with Bill Simmons. That is next week, March 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Philly Press Box Radio.